0: From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. If you're a longtime listener, you're going to recognize today's guest as our favorite bee guy. Joseph Wilson is an ecologist at Utah State University who is interested in the drivers of evolutionary diversification in insects. And he's particularly interested in the evolution of aposemitism, which is the use of signals, usually bright colors and markings, as a warning for would-be predators. This form of defense has been so successful that many animals have evolved to use this tactic, and this happens in closely related animals like Bombus calliginosis and Bombus vandychii, which are separate species of bumblebee, but at least to my eye, look like the exact same animal. It also happens in very unrelated species like Bombus vagans, which is another kind of bumblebee, and Leferia flavicolis, which is a species of robber fly. These are animals from two completely different evolutionary orders, but at least at a quick glance, and again, at least to me, it's really hard to tell the difference. And there are actually dozens of animals that look a little bit like these ones, a mimicry group. But while mimicry is a common survival tactic in the natural world, it hasn't been well-studied. It's not even clear in many cases how many animals are involved in any one group. And that's one of the things that Wilson and his collaborators are trying to figure out. Joseph Wilson, it's always a joy to chat with you. It's good to be here. Okay, I, I gotta ask you, because I'm sitting here looking at all of these different bumblebees, and... Some are really obviously different. There are some that have bright orange markings and others that are almost entirely black and somewhere in between. And I just want to know, like, how big of a bee nerd are you? Can you tell the difference?
1: Uh, Between these species? Well, this is so I guess the first question, first answer is I am a very big bee nerd. Uh, the, that being said, I can't tell the difference between some of these species. Uh, most bees are very difficult to to be able to distinguish between species. Most of them require you to look under a microscope, and that includes some of these big bumblebees. Sometimes the difference is the, the length of their cheek. Uh, is it uh, long or is it medium length? And that's a hard thing to tell just by looking at a bee. It's really as as
0: like phenotypically, the only difference is like the length of their cheek and that differentiates them as a separate species.
1: Uh, yeah, it's kind of amazing. And I'm sure. So we are very visual organisms uh, and bees are visual, but they also have lots of other other ways to communicate with the world. And so I'm sure that to to each other, there are lots of differences that we are not picking up on. Maybe there's chemical cues or, or other things like that. But yeah, to me, they look, they look really, it's really similar.
0: And, and it actually gets to my next question. Cause some of these guys, they look really a lot alike. And my evolutionary assumption would be, well, that's because they're really closely related. Like um, I guess the mammalian equivalent would be like chimps and bonobos. They look a lot alike because they're really closely related, but, but there's another factor at play here, um, which is a selective pressure that keeps these species looking similar, even as they diverge away from one another in, in all of these other ways that maybe you and I couldn't see with our naked eye, and that's, that's
1: mimicry. Exactly. And so a good way to think of mimicry, the way that I often uh, teach it to my students is, in order for something to to be considered a mimic or in a mimicry group with each other, uh one characteristic is they have to look similar uh have types as you suggested with like chimps and bonobos um another factor is they need to live in the same area because mimicry is driven by predators and so if if you look if you live in north america and you look like something that lives in australia Uh, There are no predators that frequently go between North America and Australia, so that is not going to be predator-driven. So they need to look the same, they need to have a similar geographic distribution, and then the third thing is they need to have evolved those color patterns through convergent evolution, meaning instead of being close relatives, they need to be more distantly related. So a chimp and a bonobo look similar, they live in the same places, but they are also close relatives. So their similarity is not due to mimicry, it's due to common ancestry.
0: And so it's not uncommon, right? For very different species to take on these signaling traits. We use the example of, of the robber fly and the bumblebee that look alike. That's, that's something that happens quite frequently.
1: Yeah, and we see it across the animal kingdom. Uh, Common examples are snakes. There will be a, a harmless snake that has evolved to have similar color patterns to a venomous snake. There's that rhyme, and I don't ever remember the rhyme, but it's something about red touches yellow you're a good fellow, or red touches black, (laughs) you're sorry for Jack, something like that. But it's supposed to help remind people which one's dangerous and which one's not. So we see it in snakes. We see it in uh, poison dart frogs from from the uh, South American tropics. We see it in butterflies. Um, All over the place, there are organisms that mimic other organisms. Because these these aposematic colors, they're really powerful at warning predators or potential predators to stay away from dangerous organisms. I mean, even if you've never been sprayed by a skunk, uh, those black and white contrasting patterns might make you pause uh, when you see a skunk because something about it looks uh, different than if you just saw a black cat.
0: Okay, you know what, This it's really interesting you said that because a few weeks ago, I was looking down off of my patio and I saw what I now realize, I saw a badger, which was really cool because I had never seen a badger before, but my immediate thought was, oh, crud, skunk, because I just saw this striping and my, something in my brain just went, oh, sk-. So this is what predators are doing, right? They're like, oh, crud, bumblebee, don't want to eat that. That's bad for me.
1: Exactly. And often that's based on experience. Uh, a, 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 a novice predator has never experienced a bumblebee. Uh, the first time he bites or she bites a bumblebee and gets stung in the mouth. Uh, they learn very quickly that that was not a pleasant experience, and then a lot of from from some studies from me and my colleagues, but from others, predators learn pretty quickly to avoid these harmful uh, prey items. And a lot of these in these mimicry groups, like a bumblebee can sting you, but it's not going to kill a bird if it stings a bird. But it will uh, train a bird very effectively to not uh, not mess with bumblebees again.
0: Now we are very visual organisms and and like you noted earlier like there are ways that for instance a bumblebee might notice a difference between another species of bumblebee that we would not are are there other non-visual signalers like this um and i i guess that's sort of a a, it might be a little bit of a black box question because how would we know right
1: yeah, and so so just to make sure I'm, I know what you're asking, so are, so we're talking about visual mimicry here, and are you asking are there examples of other kinds of mimicry, maybe chemical mimicry or or, or the sound mimicry? Is that what you're asking?
0: Right, like like okay, so I'm thinking of like ants and pheromones or um or right like auditory clues, like some animal makes a clue, and I know this isn't what your study was about, but it's just it's fascinating to me to think there there's probably things out there that are going on. You know in this process of convergent evolution that is very similar but not something that we would pick up on quite as quickly given how visual we are
1: yeah and you're you're totally right and there are examples of of chemical mimicry like you mentioned ants and pheromones there are various beetles that will mimic the ant pheromone but there's also some evidence that um so a, a velvet ant is another Insect that I study that is involved with mimicry, but there's some evidence that they have a chemical secretion that can mimic an ant warning pheromone, so it causes the ants to retreat from them because they they get this warning signal sent out. and in, in the auditory mimicry, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, we I started uh, some research with velvet ants like down at um, Northern Arizona University to try to record some sounds of velvet ants to see if there was some patterns in their their auditory um, Sounds that they're making, but wait, what what kind of sounds do (laughs) velvet ants make? So I'm gonna I'm gonna pause the bumblebee discussion because velvet ants are yeah. Forget the bumblebee discussion. We're on to
0: something else now.
1: Yeah. So most most (laughs) most of my research in mimicry has been on velvet ants, and so velvet ants are not ants, despite that that common name. Uh, They are a, a group of wingless wasps. Well, the females are wingless, and the males have wings, and. They are one of the most highly defended insects out there. A colleague of mine coined the phrase uh, "the indestructible insect." So they have the warning warning colors that makes them uh, makes predators avoid them. They have a really hard exoskeleton, and so they they are they're so heavily armored a lizard predator can't crush them and get stung in the mouth. The sting is very painful, but it's not very toxic, and so it doesn't have lasting negative effects other than. Uh, a long-term memory inducing uh, remembrance of the pain and they have this this ability to squeak it's called stridulation they rub two parts of their abdomen together and it makes a pretty loud squeaking sound Uh, and so as that when the lizard spits them out it hears the squeak it sees those bright colors as the velvet ant runs away and we've done some experiments that even a year later we fed we tried to feed a lizard one velvet ant So I had one experience with it. A year later, the same lizard, when we introduced another velvet ant to it, it it wouldn't even look at it. So I don't know how long-term a lizard remembers, but at least for a year, it it was not interested at all. Okay, we're already down one
0: rabbit hole, but i got to take you down another one just briefly here, because you mentioned this sting pain index. That's called the Schmidt Pain Index. It was developed by an entomologist named Justin Schmidt, who... Famously recorded his own experiences when he would subject himself to stings from all of these different insects, which makes him, you know, one of the great scientific badasses
1: of our time. <laughs> have you? Have you done this? Have you? No, I have not. tried to confirm. I let, I let Justin do that, and uh, and more power to him. I have studied velvet ants for I don't know 15 years now. Uh, and I have never been stung by a velvet ant, and I, I, I don't plan on getting stung by them. Oh, well, Joseph!
0: You know, like as soon as you say that, you know, the next time you're in
1: your lab, what's going to happen? I know it'll be interesting. Well, I, I should say, uh, the, the pain index. Justin has been mostly stung by the large velvet ants. There are also some very small ones, and I have handled the small ones and probably been stung, but they're so small, it's the the potency of the sting is very correlated to the size of the insect. And so I I am more cautious when there's a, you know, a three quarter inch long velvet ant crawling around than when it's a three millimeter long velvet ant. Sorry to mix the uh, standard and metric system, but that's how my mind works.
0: <laughs> okay, um, I love these glorious rabbit holes, but let's get back to bumblebees <laughs> and, yeah. and visual mimicry. Okay, so if we want to understand this process of mimicry when it comes to bumblebees and the species that either mimic them or they mimic, there's a bit of a problem. Because it's not always clear where one group ends and one group begins, like mimicry groups, because there's a lot of overlap in the territory and the traits. And, and so I was thinking this over, and I, th- I thought, okay, if I was asked to tackle that problem— I might look at it as a question that could potentially be answered through genetic sequencing. And then a couple of years ago, some researchers from Heather Hines' lab at Penn State University used machine learning to identify four potential groups. They basically fed in a bunch of photographs of these things and then let you know, the algorithms, the AI, figure it out. But you had a different idea. And it was sitting there right in your classroom. What did you do?
1: Exactly. So, uh, people, uh, researchers have recognized that there was some degree of mimicry in bumblebees for uh, over a hundred years. They've seen these patterns, but but they often get stuck because, as you said, there's lots of overlap and blending, and there's no clear, distinct boundary either geographically or phenotypically. And so. There's been a lot of research recently in the mimicry world suggesting that predators are generalizing when they are choosing which which prey to potentially attack. And and you can see that why this might happen if, if you're a bird and you see a bumblebee fly by, you don't have a lot of time to analyze the color pattern and decide if this is a good one to eat or a bad one to eat. You, it's right? You just like you moment. just eat or
0: don't it. You got to do it quick or else it's going to exactly. be
1: exactly. Yeah, and so predators will generalize. Uh, humans are really good at at uh, finding precise patterns, and o- other research suggests that humans have very uh, similar visual perception as predators. They, so they've compared uh, bird perception to human perception, and they find that it's it's really similar. And so. I teach general biology at the Tooele campus of Utah State University, uh, mostly freshman students. And so I decided, well, if humans have similar perception as predators, and I need a novice predator that hasn't experienced bumblebee diversity very much, uh, I thought, well, my students are are that novice predator. They None of them were bumblebee experts. And so we got to to do this as, as a way to learn about mimicry, but then also get some good data to start this process. And so I gave them little, um, they're kind of caricatures of bumblebees. Researchers will often use these cartoony looking flat images of a, of a bumblebee that just shows the color pattern. So they can compare the color patterns between species. I use these same kind of caricatures and spread them out on the desk in front of the students I taught them a little bit about mimicry and about predators, and told them, okay, you need to think like a predator. If this bumblebee flies by you, uh, do you put it in a category with these other bumblebees, or do you put it in its own category? And so I just told them to kind of sort these 50 or so bumblebees that are found in North America in that way. And as you might expect, different students sorted them in different ways. I did this over multiple semesters, so I could have you know around 40 students total that have done these sortings and then i looked for with with my co-authors on this on this paper i looked for overall patterns that we saw in these students uh groupings some students really grouped them into like 10 different uh, pools some students grouped them into three different pools and so overall we could kind of get this this uh feeling for the kinds of things students were generalizing in and then we that would that was our starting point and then we and used color, our knowledge. Color
0: was a big one of those, right? Color was a, oh. a really big differentiator.
1: It was primarily color was the main thing. Uh, the and and it, uh, kind of this this big overall uh, gestalt for the color. Does it have orange on it, or is it mostly black? And so they weren't really looking at. Where the black and yellow stripes were necessarily, but if it had black and yellow stripes, so really. Did they broad just have a path.
0: blast doing this? Like, did they have so much fun doing this as opposed to you know, like studying or listening to a <laughs> lecture? I
1: like to hope that they had fun with it, but I don't. I don't really know. I'll have to ask them this semester when I try it again.
0: Well, let's talk about that consensus because each student, like you said, had their kind of own ideas about which bees belonged in which group but you had these broad patterns emerge and you ended up with five pretty distinct groups. And then a, a sixth group that was sort of like a, I don't know, a hodgepodge group.
1: Um, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite of these groups? Is there one that you're like, that's, those are my boys or girls, I guess.
1: Yeah. These are, the, so we did just focus only on the the female worker bumblebees. That's the one that you usually see flying around in the summer. Um, I, I don't know if I would say I have a favorite. I have, I have some affinity to this group that we call the red mimicry ring. All of these have an orangish red stripe on their abdomen. And that's partly because I grew up in the Intermountain West and these are most common in the Intermountain West. But I also really like these ones we call the black mimicry ring. These are found mostly in the Pacific coast, those mountains along the Pacific coast. And they're primarily black, Uh, dark bumblebees with like a yellow stripe on their shoulders and maybe a yellow stripe somewhere on their abdomen. I just think that they're, I like them because they're different than what I grew up with.
0: I think those ones have like this sort of like superhero kind of look to uh, them, Yeah,
1: you know, I like that. but
0: not like the, not like the 1970s and eighties, like multicolored superheroes, <laughs> more like, you know, the post Tim Burton, Batman <laughs> and beyond superheroes. I, I like it. Yeah, I can see it. So you, you mapped some of these groups uh, and you just mentioned like, you had, like the inner mountain, the Pacific Northwest, you mount some, map some of these groups, that were subjectively created, really, by these students. And they don't just look quite alike. It also turns out they inhabit very similar areas of North America. And, okay, to me, this is where things get really interesting, because then when you looked at the non-bumblebee species that are thought to mimic a certain set of traits, they often inhabited similar parts of the continent. Like, the group you called the Western Yellow Ring had bees that looked an awful lot like some of the robber flies that live
1: in the same area. Exactly. And that's what has always fascinated me about mimicry is, so uh, it's one of natural selection is uh, very powerful when, when the, the option is to die or to stay alive. Uh, natural selection will choose those that stay alive. Very quickly, and so natural selection can drive some of this convergent evolution really quickly. And so, because bumblebees are a pretty well defended organism with their sting and their large, so the sting is somewhat painful. Um, anything that that evolves to look like a bumblebee automatically gets protection that way. And so there are, are dozens of species of flies that look like bumblebees. There's several other bee species that look like bumblebees. And yeah, we see the same kind of patterns across North America that the the fly species that live in the east look more like the eastern bumblebees, and the fly species that live in the Pacific Northwest look more like the Pacific Northwest bumblebees. And that's probably, I mean, that's evidence that this is a a, a strong mimicry complex that natural selection is is selecting for these distinct coloration.
0: Let's turn back to that machine learning study that we mentioned earlier. How close were the groups that you and your students came up with to the groups that the computers came up with?
1: They're actually really similar. Um one of the main findings from that machine learning uh study was that there's a lot of overlap. And so it almost felt like that that that, that overlap became the focus of the study rather than the 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 really interesting mimicry rings that they found. And there is a lot of overlap. But yeah, we had a lot of similar mimicry, I mean, a lot of similar patterns that we found. We included Mexico in our study and that wasn't included in the machine learning study. But one of the only differences is we separated out what we are calling the Eastern yellow mimicry ring and the Western yellow mimicry ring. And the machine learning algorithm didn't didn't quite separate those out as much. Hmm.
0: So we've really found something that undergraduates are
1: kind of useful for. (laughs) <laughs> yes, among among many things, right? But yeah, it, I I have actually used undergraduates in various mimicry studies including some of my velvet ant uh studies. I've also done there's there's these beetles called darkling beetles. Uh, some of them are chemically defended and others are not. And so we've we I I call it a, a human perception test and I've had students kind of rank how similar two different organisms look to each other and i use that as a metric when i'm uh kind of ranking the 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 i call it the mimetic fidelity how how close two things look to each other you can measure that in various ways you can use machine learning you can use some statistical approaches and i use also uh human perception approaches and so i've i've used undergrads in multiple studies uh because it's it's really useful humans brains i had a, a colleague once tell me he was Working on these really teeny little microscopic wasps and trying to find differences, and he said this thing that has always stuck with me. He works in at Penn State. He said uh, the human brain is better at any supercomputer at looking finding the differences between between these these insects. And what's hard is the human brain can see the difference, but we can't always verbalize that difference. And I often hear taxonomists say, "Well, it looks different, but..." I can't figure out which character makes it look different. It just looks different to me. And so using that, realizing that even freshman brains are better than any supercomputer at finding the differences, I take advantage of those, those supercomputer brains to uh, look for differences because all I'm wanting to know is if they see a difference, not necessarily what the difference is.
0: Even freshman brains. I love that. <laughs> I, I was thinking, I, have you tried this out? I think this would be so much fun with elementary school kids.
1: Oh, that that's a really good idea. I should try it with them. I, I haven't worked in as many elementary classrooms. And so that's a really good idea, though.
0: OK, so I got it. So my my partner happens to be a third grade teacher. Can we set this up? What do you think?
1: Uh, yeah, I think that would be fun. I think we could do it in a similar way that we did it with my students. I can provide the bumblebee cutouts and and a little lesson plan and see what kind of groups they make. I mean, elementary school students might even be better than freshmen because they have less life experience to cloudy their judgment. Well,
0: I often say that elementary school students are smarter than my freshmen. So this could, (laughs) could, we could be onto something. And after we publish these results in like a high profile journal, what are are the next steps (laughs) in your research?
1: Well, and I think I thank you for asking that because one of the things with this defining of these bumblebee mimicry rings. So, like I said, bumblebee mimicry has been recognized for a hundred years, but nobody had really defined the distinct groups. Uh, the the machine learning paper uh, mentioned some, but even of this amorphous group that had a lot of overlap. And so, there's a lot of questions still to be asked with bumblebee mimicry. There's a lot of in between species that don't look don't look quite like one or quite like the other, we need to ask questions about why that, why does that happen? Why are there some in-between species? Or why are there species that some species have multiple different color forms, so they fit in multiple mimicry rings. Other species only have one color form across their whole range. And so before you can ask those questions, you have to have a baseline of a starting point. And that's what we see this paper as, is this is a starting point where we have defined these five mimicry rings. Now we can start asking other questions. Uh, What other flies fit in here? Uh, Why do some flies fit and some flies don't? What about male bumblebees? How do they fit into these mimicry rings? Because male bumblebees can't sting. So all these kinds of questions can now be asked now that we have this defined baseline to start with.
0: That's Joseph Wilson. He's an evolutionary ecologist at Utah State University and part of a team of researchers that recently published the results of their study on bumblebee mimicry in the journal Nature Scientific Reports. Joe Wilson, it is always a pleasure.
1: It is fun. Thank you for inviting me on again.
0: Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.